Thank you for listening to a Quiet Church Showmans. This is Jared Sparks, one of the pastors at Christ Church Carbondale. We want to thank you so much for listening, as Ransom said, my son. And we ultimately hope that these are God-honoring. And because they are God-honoring, we hope that they are also edifying and encouraging and, and challenging to you in the best sort of way. Thanks so much for listening. 23 this morning, the sermon title is Election. Let's go before the Lord. Lord, we need your help. We need wisdom. And I thank you for your word. We are resolved to never be ashamed of your word, but we want to embrace and understand your word in the best way we can. So Holy Spirit, lead us this morning. And I just ask that you would just dump a mountain of mercy on us this morning. And we know, based on this passage, that you desire to make known to us the riches of your glory because by your grace we are vessels of mercy. And so I pray the riches of your glory would be on display this morning. And just lead us as we walk through this passage. I trust that you're going to. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now this is the only, the second time that I've ever got to preach this passage, Romans 9, 1 through 23. I preached it about 11 years ago and haven't preached it since. I've referenced the passage here and there, but I'm excited about preaching this chapter today for several reasons. And, and one of the reasons is because this section of scripture God has used to completely change my life. It, it's just been so formative for me. It's been so life-changing for me and life-giving for me. And as I look back in my life, I just can't help but thank God for all that He's done in my life through this chapter. And I've begun to see how big God really is through passages like the one we're going to look at today. And I think if, if we understand the passage rightly, we stand back from this chapter today and we say, my goodness, God is really, really big and really, really awesome. Matt Chandler, who's been really helpful for me over the years, says about the Grand Canyon, nobody goes to the Grand Canyon to stand and look and then think about how big they are. They go to the Grand Canyon to realize a sense of smallness and a sense of how big the Grand Canyon is. And I think it works like that way with any natural wonder in the world. You go to see things that are beautiful in our world because at its sight, you're in awe of that thing and you're not thinking about yourself. And when we get into the passage like this today and other passages like it, you stand at it and you just stand with awe. Hopefully, if we receive it in the right way, we stand with awe and we say, my goodness, God is big. And my option here is to trust him or just to think about myself. And so I'm praying that this would be life-changing for you in ways maybe it's never affected you before. Romans 9. Now we're moving into a new section today. We've been in sections, Romans, the book of Romans really outlines very well in a big picture. And then as we get down into smaller pictures, chapter by chapter, it outlines well also. But the first four chapters of the book of Romans are really big on the doctrine of justification. Into a little bit of chapter 5, but it really hammers home the human predicament. What's wrong with mankind? Mankind has rebelled against God. And what has God done about it? And that whole doctrine of justification by faith alone is hammered out through, through chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, and into 5. And then in chapters 5 through 8, we just completed that section of Romans. We talk about sanctification based on the fact of assurance. You are assured of your salvation. And once you're assured of your salvation, you're ready to start walking this faith out, to start living this stuff out. If you don't get justification and assurance... Sanctification is always going to be out of balance because you're going to be obeying God or trying to obey God to earn things from God, things He's already given you. And if you don't understand all that God has given you in Christ, then our actions toward Christ or our understanding when we read the Bible is going to be all out of balance because we're going to try to obey, try to obey, try to obey, trying to earn something that God has already given us in Christ. And there are countless thousands and millions of Christians who are living their lives trying to earn from God things He's already promised us now. And so Romans 5-8 through 8 wants to just hammer it home into our minds and into our hearts. You're safe in Christ. The promises of God are all yes and amen in Christ. You are safe, you are secure, you are forgiven, you are counted righteous. The promise of God for you rests on grace, not on works of the law. And then we find in Romans chapter 8 how it ends. I loved it last week. It, it starts, Romans 8, with no condemnation and it ends with no separation. Nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. Nothing. Nothing. This transcendent closing, it's a mic drop moment. What can separate you from the, from, the, from the love of Christ? Absolutely nothing. Boom. Case closed. It's over. Let's move on. 
And so we get into a new section today. So we move from justification, sanctification, assurance, and now we're going we're to see the eternal purposes of God through chapters 9 through 11. What is God up to with his people? What he has, has he been up to? What is he up to right now? And what is he going to be up to in the future with us? And then chapters 12 through 16, we talk about how then shall we live? All this stuff is true, so how are we going to walk this thing out now? What does God's law have to say about how we conduct ourselves and live ourselves with God and with others and with our world? And so today we start a new section on God's eternal purposes. Now, we talked about how secure we are in Christ. And a natural question begins to pop up in the minds of readers. If God's people is so secure, if Christians are safe and secure in Christ, and nothing can separate us from the love of God, well, what about Israel? If Christians are secure, why wasn't Israel secure? If Christians, those who are in Christ, are safe and secure, what's the whole deal in the Old Testament about, a bit, about Israel breaking God's covenant and not experiencing all the promises of God or failing to attain the promises of God. If we are safe, why wasn't Israel safe? And Paul begins to address this. His kinsmen, his brothers and sisters, his people, Israel, those who had the promises of God. What went wrong? Is there something that was broken according to God's word? Did something take God by surprise? What was God up to in the Old Testament, and what were God's people up to in the Old Testament. So we're going to be looking and concluding at this today, but we're going to be concluding in verse 23, and all of this is building, and here's what God wants for us to walk away with this morning. It's really clear, it's said and stated really clear, verse 23 it says that in chapter 9, he did all of this in order that, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy. And this morning, here's what I want us just to taste a little bit of. If we can just get a taste of it, it'll, it literally will change the complete direction of our life if it hasn't already. If you taste just a little bit of his glory this morning that he's prepared for you from eternity past, if you taste a little bit of it, it'll change you forever. And he has prepared so much glory for you, so much mercy for you. And that's the whole desire this morning. As we work through this, we're building and building and building. And the whole point is that we would, those who are vessels of mercy, would experience and see God's glory. His glory. So that's where we're going. We're diving into His glory this morning. We have received mercy, now let's marvel at His glory. I want you to look at verses 1-5, through five, and I want you to see the heart of the Apostle Paul. Here's what he says. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow... An unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race according to the flesh is Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Men. Paul, apparently because he says it, has real sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart, unceasing day and night, as he thinks about his people, his kinsmen by the flesh, the Israelites. He has unceasing anguish in his heart. Why? Well, he wishes he could be cut off from Christ, which is such a bold statement. It's one that I don't think I could ever make. But he wishes he could be cut off from Christ if it meant his kinsmen in the flesh, Israel, could be saved in his place. As he thinks about his brothers and sisters in, according to the flesh that he loves, his race, his blood, his bloodline, the seed of Abraham, the Jewish people, he wishes, I would gladly, if it meant all of them be saved, I would cut myself off from Christ that I could give them right relationship with Christ. If I could do that, I would do it. Now you think about that, I... I don't know if I can say that. I would say that if it was for the sake of my children or my wife. But it's hard to think about that in that way. I don't think that's a statement I could say about anybody else or anything else, anyone else. Paul, however, you can see, has great anguish. He uses the word anguish. The words he uses are intentional. And it, we should understand it rightly that this is really troubling him. But his conscience bears witness in the truth. He's not lying that this is true. And Israel is, in fact, in trouble even though 
they have to them, Israel in the flesh, the Jewish people, to them belong things like adoption, glory, covenants, the law, worship, promises, the patriarchs, and even according to the flesh, the bloodline all the way goes down to Christ. Israel in the Old Testament, everybody knows this, is God's chosen people. God chose Israel of all the tribes and nations of the world. He didn't choose them because they were the greatest, or He didn't choose them because they were the best or the strongest. God chose them, according to Deuteronomy chapter 7, because He loved them. That's why God chose Israel. That's the great reason. It sounds like a not reason, but that's the reason given. God chose the nation of Israel because He loved them. And God has the freedom to love whom He wants to love. And so He chose a nation. It was a national election. It was God choosing an entire people and saying, they're my people. And so Abraham and his seed forever would be, the, in that line, that blood line of the flesh, would be God's chosen people nationally. They were God's chosen people and they had all the promises, all the laws, all the gifts of God given to them. They were only to obey God. They were to follow His law. We see clearly that God has nationally elected a people, Israel. But here's the reality. Even though every person who was born into the family of Jacob, even though they were all a part of God's chosen people, there was a problem. All of God's people, every single person was born into the, into the Israelite people. Not every single one of those people actually believed in the covenant promises. They were all part of God's chosen people, but not all of God's chosen people actually believed God. In the Old Testament, there was this thing called a mixed covenant. And God's people were within that mixed covenant, Israel, and then Israel had within Israel a group of people that actually believed the promises. There were believers and non-believers in the covenant people of God. It was a mixed covenant. So God corporately chose a nation, and that nation, as a nation, broke God's covenant. They did not believe. So is the problem with what God said about Israel, or is it the the problem, does it lie with Israel? There's a question that comes up. If Israel did not believe and did not receive the promises, then was God's word wrong about Israel? Here's what it says, look at verse 6. But it's not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his, his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Now this is absolutely crucial for us to understand. God's word was not wrong about Israel, and the reason God's word was not wrong about Israel is because not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Okay? So, this is crucial. Not every Israelite, national, like Jewish people before Christ, not every Jew, this is saying, is actually a true Jew. Not every Israelite is actually a true Israelite. What in the world does that mean? There's an Israel within Israel. Okay, look again at the passage. It's crucial. Like I said, it's crucial for us to understand. Look at verse 6. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. So there is an Israel within an Israel. Just being a child of Abraham doesn't make you a true child of Abraham. Because through Isaac shall your offspring be named. So what does it mean then to be named as an offspring of Isaac? What is that name? Okay, what, what is this? So the offspring of Isaac are the true Israel. Please explain, Paul. What does it mean that there's an Israel within Israel in the Old Testament? Okay, look at verse 8. This means that is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. So what that's telling us is in the Old Testament, just because you were born into Abraham's family, in the line of Abraham, 
In the flesh, you were a child of Abraham, and you were part of God's chosen people. But that does not mean they were true children of God. To be a true child of God, you had to be in the offspring, along, the, along a child of promise, through Isaac. So how did one become, or how is one a child of promise and not just a child of the flesh in the Old Testament? And this is going to have implications for us here today. There's an Israel within Israel in the Old Testament. Not all of God's people were actually God's children. There was another criteria that had to be met to be within the true Israel of God. Now, as stated, in the same covenant, there were children of the flesh and children of the promise. There were those who believed the promises of God and those who did not believe in the promises of God. And even though they were all a part of that same Israel... Some who had faith, some who did not. And that Israel within Israel, a true Israel and a false Israel. There was an elect chosen for salvation Israel within the elect people of God. There was an elect chosen people within Israel, chosen for salvation, within the elect national people of God. There was an elect within the elect, layers of election here. God choosing a nation, and then God choosing a people out of that nation. The children of promise. The true Israel and the not true Israel. A national election, which did not ensure salvation. And an individual election, which did secure salvation. And so now, in the text, Paul's going to explain, and he's going to move from national election, God choosing a people, Israel, and everybody in that Israel, and all of them receive some sort of benefits, being a part of that old covenant, a mixed covenant. And he's going to move to individual election, and he's going to explain how individual election works. How does somebody become a true child of God? Look at verse 9. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived and conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had not yet done neither either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now, this passage has nothing to do with Calvinism. And my preaching has nothing to do with Calvinism here today. It has everything to do with Romans 9. And what we want to be doing is not building some systematic theology and then trying to put a systematic theology into the text. That's not how theology is done. Theology is done through the pages of the scripture, coming up out of the scripture, and molding and shaping us. And what we want to do is try to understand what this says in the most accurate and best way possible. We want to be biblicists around here. We don't care to have theological labels thrown around or grabbed onto. We just want to believe what the Bible has to say. And this text is really clear on individual election. God chooses who will be the children of promise. Here's what it says. Before Jacob and Esau were even born, before they had done either good or bad, in order that God's purposes of election might continue on, and it wasn't based on what Jacob or Esau is going to do, it was all before they were born, God elected or chose Jacob, and he did not choose Israel. Election is according to the purpose of the one who calls. Now, some of you may be familiar with this. I know a lot of us are familiar with Romans 9. For some of you, this may be really new. And as stated before, this is only the second time I've preached this passage. Sermons on this particular chapter are pretty rare. And if you didn't grow up in a church that preaches through books of the Bible, this is a section that you probably have never heard preached on at all. And if you're not regularly reading through your Bible, it's a section you're not going to come, come to very often. I mean, you're going to come here and read this. You're going to read some things about choice and Deuteronomy. and It's scattered throughout all of the Bible. But you've probably not heard this passage preached. I'd be willing to bet you've heard less than two or three sermons live on this chapter in your life. 
Because it's not, it's just not a, he loved Jacob and hated Esau before they were born, before they had done either right or wrong. It's, it's not one that just preaches well, you know what I mean? Where you go to a conference and think, I'm going to preach a really good sermon that everybody's going to love. I'm going to preach Romans 9, you know? Or like at a homeschool convention or something like that, you know? Like, wouldn't go over very well, you know? These sermons, typically in these passages, it just, it just scares people. In fact, Adam did a great job last week saying, you know, God didn't just throw this in there. You had that hand motion. He didn't just throw this in there to get people to argue and fight about. This is about discovering the riches of his glory. And so I, I don't know of any passages that could be more clear. Though they were not yet born or done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, Rebecca, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now notice that God's choice of Jacob or Esau was not based on Jacob or Esau's choice or rebellion to God. God's choice of you as well is not based on your choice of him. Jacob's choice of God and our choice of God, if we can call it that, we do make real choices, but we respond to God's choice over us. Humanity does. God does not respond to humanity's choice of God. We respond to God. God is the active agent in our salvation. We are not the active agent. We didn't cause our election. This is something that wasn't based on our works or wasn't based on how well we would do with grace or how we would do with the gift of faith. It was based nothing on us at all, and it was based entirely on God's sovereign choice. Entirely based in God's heart and mind. The election of Jacob over Esau was not about the morality of Jacob. We know that. Jacob's name means the deceiver. Jacob was a great deceiver. God didn't choose Jacob because he was a good guy. God chose Jacob because he's merciful. One commentator said about this, what is shocking about this passage, it isn't that God would choose one and not the other. The shocking thing about this passage is that God would choose either of them. What's astounding to Paul, what's mind-blowing to Paul, is not, is not that God wouldn't choose one. The natural thing is what's, what would seem really normal and really right if we understood the sin of mankind, it would be really easy for God to not choose anybody. But the astounding thing, the astounding thing is that God actually chooses to save any sinner at all. That is what is mind-blowing. That's what's jaw-dropping, is that God would actually choose to save Jacob and you. So there is a natural response that comes up inside of us. We hear, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. It's from Malachi chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. And there's all, way, all the sort of ways that we can think of to try to untie, untie that knot. We can say, well, Jesus said to hate your family. And in relation to hating your family, it doesn't mean to just hate your family. It means love Jesus so much that in relation to how much you love Jesus, it looks like you hate your family and on the scales and the comparison. And we could say that. Because it's not as if God did not love Esau at all. He did have a general love for Esau. But it does mean, in a real sense, that God hated Esau. He loved Jacob, and he hated Esau. And this wars against, absolutely wars against. I know how it sounds. It wars against modern sensibilities. It wars against what feels right, what sounds right, what we've been told about God's egalitarian love that's the same for everybody across the board always. It doesn't sound, sounds like God should be more benevolent. It sounds like I would be a better God than God. And inside of us, I've heard argument after argument of people, and I've warred against this passage for years and years and years, hated the passage through high school and into college, into two, the year 2006, and just hated it, warred against it, and it's so frustrating because it's just so stinking plain, and it's just there, and it's just angering. Why would God say that? Because keep in mind, this is God saying this. 
Couldn't have God chose more sensible words or nice words? Couldn't he have just said that I, I, I love them both the same, but the deciding factor here is that Jacob would one day choose me? Wouldn't that be a lot nicer? Just leave it in the hands of people, God. You just be nice to everyone. You be the exact same to everyone. And then, and then it's just put it all in our hands. That's not what God does. Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. Whatever God does is right. That is right. Jacob was individually elected for life. Esau was not. And what should we say to this? Remember those two questions we've been talking about the last couple weeks? Here's the first thing that rises up when people get into theological discussion about this. Well, does God choose you or do you choose God? And then we just, you know, verbal argument and fight. And some people emotionally can't even handle it. And they're thinking, oh, what about my kids? And we're all robots and all this stuff. Why evangelize? And Okay, you guys know the discussion. Probably been in the discussion over Thanksgiving or Christmas or you get it. Question number one, okay, because here's, here's the impulse in everyone. That feels wrong and unjust. And if you understand that passage in a way that doesn't make it immediately come up inside of you, that feels wrong, then you're understanding the passage wrong. Because Paul anticipates this is how this is going to make people feel. They're going to feel like this. The Holy Spirit inspired him to, to anticipate what they're going to be feeling. They're going to say that's unjust. God shouldn't do that. I'm more just than God. And if I was God, I wouldn't do that. That's mean. I don't like it. It doesn't make me feel good. It's unjust. It is unjust. And countless number of people, that's what they say. John Wesley, I have this later in my notes, but I'll share it with you now. Approaching this passage in his sermon titled, uh, God's Free Grace, he said this. This is a paraphrase, and I've got the exact quote, but it was kind of confusing. But this is the point he was making. Whatever Romans 9 says, it can't say that. Whatever it means, it can't mean that. Because it's so clear, he just simply said, it can't mean that. It can't actually mean what it's saying. And we don't approach any other scripture like that. We don't come to any clear passage of Scripture. We don't come to any teaching of Scripture and say, well, that can't actually mean that because I don't like it or because it doesn't sound just. So the anticipation is there. It's going to, in the minds of people, it's going to go in their ears and it's going to raise up some red flags and they're going to think, that's unjust. That doesn't sound right. And so that's what Paul says. What shall we say then? Verse 14. Is there injustice on God's part? Let's just settle it right now. Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. Jacob was elected before either were born or either had done right or wrong. And here's the answer. By no means, that's not unjust. That is not unjust. It's not unjust of God. By no means. No, he's not unjust. He's right and he's good and is holy. And this is true. Why is God not unjust in this? Let me do a show of hands in here. Who has ever felt like, upon bumping into Romans 9, maybe it was years ago, maybe it's right now, maybe it's current, maybe this is the first time you ever heard this discussion. In your heart, who has felt that sounds unjust before? Who has felt that doesn't feel right? Who's been angry with us? Okay. Maybe for you, when you read this, you're just like, yep, if God says that I believe it, we're good to go. And it wasn't some like philosophical or theological dilemma for you. But people feel this. And that's why it's avoided by countless numbers of people. It's just not talked about. Or that's about nations. That's about nations. Yeah, there are some national implications. We just talked about that. Cor- corporate Israel. But there's personal implications here, just like in Romans chapter 10, when it says everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Does that mean people, individuals? Absolutely. It's about nations and it's about individuals. And this is about individual salvation. So why is God not unjust? Look at verse 15. For he says to Moses, I have mercy. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Look at me. God is free. Humans are in bondage. God is the one who is free. Humans are not the ones who are free. 
We can make volitional choices, and we need to make sure that we know distinctives and categories here. Humans make real choices that matter. And there is a sense in which we are free to make decisions that are consequential. But when it comes to things of God, our hearts and our minds are in bondage, and we are not free to come to God, but God is free to save us. God is the one who's free. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. Listen to the words here, mercy. I'll have mercy on whom I will have mercy. God is not obligated, in other words, to give mercy to anybody. Mercy is not a human right. Bernie Sanders just said high-speed internet is a a human right. (laughs) Crazy. High-speed internet, a human right. We think we have these certain human rights. Receiving mercy from God is not a human right. And yet God gives it freely and bountifully. And he has given it to you. And countless numbers, uh, uh, the, the, the stars in the sky can't even count how merciful God has been. God is merciful. And what God does is right. He will have that mercy. And he will have that compassion on whom he will. And God is not obligated by our mere existence to give it. The real amazement, real amazement is that God would be merciful to anyone who had rebelled against him. To anyone who deserves hell. Why would God be merciful to any of us? Why would God save a single person? That's the real question. Why would he save anyone when we have rebelled against him in ways we will never fully comprehend? And yet, room full of people, countless numbers of people in churches all throughout this country, land, and world who have received God's mercy that was not owed to them only because God was merciful to them. God is free. Look at verse 16. It, meaning salvation, it, so then it does not depend on human will or exertion, but on God whom has mercy. Election to salvation does not depend on human will or exertion. Election to salvation depends on God. If you are a Christian, every single one of us in here, we owe everything to God who has had mercy and compassion on us. He chose to save us. The source of our salvation was heaven down, not our hearts up. The source of God's mercy is not found in us. It is found totally and freely in God. And the right response to this, if if we're thinking through this rightly, well then that means I had nothing to do with my salvation. Yes, that's what it means. I had nothing to do with it. There wasn't anything in me that wooed God in my direction. There was nothing in me, just within me as a human being, that attracted Him to me. It was God freely Freely and graciously coming to me, being merciful to me, breathing on me and welcoming us into his arms, calling us his son or daughter. We weren't his son and daughter. We were rebels who were at war with him. And God said, come be mine. Before we were born, before we had done anything good or bad, God did not look down the corridors of time to see who would, be, who would freely choose him and who would not. That would be based on us, and it was not based on us. It was based solely on His mercy. God chose to save you. It all depends on God. I find a lot of comfort because sometimes my exertion is revealed to be not enough. Have you ever exerted yourself? Everyone in here, come on, war with sin you feel in your exertion your own frailty? Trying to be a better man? Trying to be a better woman? Our exertion only goes so far before our exhaustion is on display. And I am so glad that the most important thing that I have was not dependent upon my ability to exert myself, but on God's mercy to me. And my security in Christ is not based on my will or my exertion, but on God's will and God's activity, what He's done. 
I find no security or peace in putting salvation in the hands of people or in the squarely in the hands of myself. And the Bible doesn't intend us to. The Bible intends us to find our security right in the heart of God, right in His will, right in His ability to save empty-handed sinners. Depends on God. Verse 17 and 18 tells us about mercy and hardening. It gets into another nitty-gritty question about how all the mechanics of this work. Look at verse 17. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I've raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Now, right before the two questions that are addressed that are going to rise up inside of us in this chapter, right before each question is a bold statement. Verse 12, the younger, the older will serve the younger. At his written, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Verse 18, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. So you're reading through your Bible reading plan and you're reading, why did God harden Pharaoh's heart? And people say, well, no, Pharaoh hardened his heart first. No, that's not true. God said first that he was going to harden Pharaoh's heart. And then Herod did, Pharaoh did, not Herod, Pharaoh, Pharaoh did harden his heart. He was responsible for hardening his own heart as well. But why would God do that? And you've probably had questions, some of the most difficult questions theologically can come from children. And I've heard this asked, it's kind of an entryway into some of these questions, is the hardening of Pharaoh. Why did God do that? And I remember growing up asking questions like that and being told, well, God didn't really harden his heart. Yes, he did. Well, not really, though. Not really. God really didn't do that. But God tells us he did. He really hardened his heart. He's going to have mercy on whomever he will, and he's going to harden whomever he will. Now, let the same question, show of hands here. This statement, same thing. Doesn't that sound wrong? It doesn't sound right that he would harden somebody. Why would God do that? That's great that he'd have mercy, but why would he harden somebody? And so, impulses. That's the brain waves. The brain's... It's moving. Why does God find fault then? The natural question. You get it, right? Well, then why does God find fault with people who have hardened hearts? Because God did that. Why does God find fault with people and blame them for hardening their heart when he did it? So, you know, you know, just theologically, we're just like, oh, gosh. It's like, what am I supposed to do with this? And how does this even compute? It doesn't sound right. And so Paul just, again, tells us, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? And that's what everybody says with this whole discussion. That's what everyone says. Well, that makes God evil. Why would God find fault? If God hardened Pharaoh, it's God's fault. If God hardens somebody, it's God's fault. But here we're told that God rose up Pharaoh and rose up Egypt, and God had a plan. He had a plan to show his power over Egypt. He rose them up, gave Egypt strength, gave Pharaoh strength, so he could show him how much more powerful he was than them. He wanted his name proclaimed throughout all the earth. God's hardening of Pharaoh's heart had a purpose. And it's deep in the heart of God. Much of it is left in the secret decrees and knowledge of God. Never to be understood fully by us as long as we search it out. God had simply mercy and he hardens whom he will. He has a purpose. So the response... To that question, why does God still find fault? Because people are thinking, well, that's fatalism. Choices don't matter. Again, we're all puppets. We're not going to have any children. What if it's, you know, people say, well, this is duck, duck, damn. How are we going to, oh my goodness, God, it's like Russian roulette with children. Like, how does, oh my, and all the terrible things that people say. Well, if God's like that, that's not the God I know. How many times have, have you heard that or even said that? That's not the God I know. 
Well, maybe the God you know is just made up. And you make a God up in your mind that meets your sensibilities, that sounds right and feels right to you. And if you've never read through Scripture, it doesn't have to be this or anything else, read through Scripture and bumped up against something that doesn't demand you lay down the false idol of who you want God to be and to take up the true God who the Bible says He is, then we're reading the Bible wrong. Because across the world, people have feelings about what God should be like, and all of those feelings have to be submitted to God's Word. God's going to tell us what He's like and tell us what He does. And so as all these objections come up, and all this back talk begins to happen, and it does, why? Why, God? I don't like this. Come on, I want candy now. I want you to be like this. Do what I want you to do. Be like what I, what I want you to be like. Don't be like that. That's mean. Verse 20. Who are you, O oh man, to talk back to God? Who are you to answer back to God? What is, will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has not the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? It's, it's almost like Paul's saying, hey, know your place, man. You're, you are man, mankind, and God is God. And, and one of the reasons this is so hard for so many people to wrestle with passages like this is because we have a natural view in our world of a small God and big man. With a big, big view of humanity, a big, big view of man, and humanism just rules the day in our world. It's just the culture we breathe. It's on everything we see, the, the, the might and the power of mankind. Even when that mankind devalues life, they're so twisted and screwed up. And so were we. But we have a huge view of man and therefore a small view of God. But what this passage and what the Bible is calling us out of is stop looking at yourself when you stand at the Grand Canyon, for goodness sake. Stop getting a little mirror out and taking a selfie in front of the Grand Canyon and just sit there for a while and just look at it and enjoy the view. God is so much bigger than you, so much more glorious. And when we have small views of God, we have no frame of reference for passages like this. We have no frame of reference to be able to say, God is God and you are man. Know your place. Don't, don't talk back to God. He gets to talk to us and we get to be the listeners. But this is hard. It's not unclear. It's hard, but is not unclear. Who are you to answer back to God? Now, notice there could be a lot more that we wish it could be, you know, wish would be said. Who are you, old man, to talk back to God? Like, that's my answer. Who are you to answer back to God? And so it's almost like God's like, okay, stop talking. Shh. There's other places I invite you into intimacy, and there's times when we're walking with God where our sonship or being a daughter of God is so intimate, and we're in prayer, and we know we're singing. And there's other times where we just need to just be silent, just let God speak, and know that I am different than God, and God is different than me, and I need to know my place. And God has rights over me, rights that I don't have over Him. And the illustration is given does not the potter have rights over the clay? Humans in this illustration are the clay, and God is this potter. And He has rights to do with that clay that we don't have. He can do with His creation as He pleases. That's God's prerogative. Who, upon getting out a clay lump, begins to speak to the clay lump and say, Hey, clay, what do you want me to make out of you? The clay lump has no ability to fashion itself. It's entirely, entirely dependent upon the potter. And as that pot shapes, that clay doesn't have rights over the potter. That clay doesn't get to reach up and grab that hand and shape that pot into a teapot or a tea kettle or into a, a little cup or a bowl. It's entirely dependent upon God. And what we're being told here is that that's what God's like. You're the clay. He's the potter. Let him do what he wants to do. 
We don't get to tell him what he should do. He is shaping us. We don't get to shape him. And this is a passage that kind of draws a line in the sand whether or not people want to shape God or be shaped by God. Nope, I don't like that. Forget it. Where we try to take control and say, I, the clay, am going to accept the God I want to accept. A version that is different than this. But God has rights over the clay. And why does God do it all this way? I mean, there's going to be a purpose stated, but I just want to ask you a question. Is all this okay with you? God is the, God is the potter, you are the clay. Is that okay with you? Internal level, just in, in your mind. Is it okay that I'm not in charge? That he's in charge of me? Is that okay? Look at this. Didn't have to be put in there, but we get a what if statement. It's consider this. Let's get into the, the heart of God. This is one reason that God has done it this way. One day we'll know all the other reasons. Look at verse 22. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, so desiring to show his wrath, God desires not just to show his love, but God desires also to show his wrath. Okay, these are attributes that are good, right, and holy. Desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, make known his power. So he desired to show his wrath and to make known his power. And to show his wrath and make known his power, he has done this. He has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. He has been patient with those he has fashioned in dishonorable use. He's patient with them. He's kind to them. He's loving to them. It's not unloving or unpatient of God to fashion clay one way and then fashion, fashion other clay another way. He's been, passion. He's been patient with vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. In verse 23, look at this. In order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory. I started here and I want to end here. The whole point of this section is that we would see the riches of his glory. They were prepared for you from eternity past, for you. If you're a believer in Christ in here today, if you've repented of your sins and trusted in Christ, then the riches of God's mercy and his glory are there for you to discover this morning and forevermore. And in this passage, we can rage against it, we can dislike it, or we can say, God, you, I'm dependent upon you. And all of your mercy to me and your purposes to me, up for me, were not based on me one iota. You've called me, you've saved me, you've justified me. And as we look at our lives and we think about how strong we are, even in our rebellion, we think that we could actually raise a fist against God or untangle un or undo the salvation that he is intending and has given us and will give us and carry out to completion. He who began a good work in you will finish it. Like, yeah, but you don't know how big of a mess up I am. It doesn't depend on you, human will or exertion, but God who has mercy and he's been merciful to you. And so the options are here before us. We can, like John Wesley, who God used to do many, many, many good things, and his brother Charles, we could, like John Wesley, look at this passage and say, eh, whatever it means, it doesn't mean that, nonchalantly walk by. Leave here and be like, eh, it's no big deal. Or we can say, I don't like it. And we can just get in a theological knot and think, oh my gosh, what are the consequences of this? He couldn't stomach it, the plain meaning. And I want to challenge you to not be like that. Instead, I want us this morning to just think about how merciful, how big God is. Stand in front of that Grand Canyon and just be, God, you've been kind to me. You've been kind. You've been merciful to me. You have been patient with me. You are just lavishing your love upon me. And it was all in your heart for me. And it was none of my own doing. 
None of it. God, I'm entirely dependent for this breath, for me to raise my shoulders. Everything that I have, everything that I own, everything that I am is all because of your mercy to me. There's nothing that I can say came from me or from inside of me. It's all your mercy. We owe him everything. There's nothing for us to do but to worship. To be in awe and worship. And here, if you're not a believer, so let me apparently not actually speak out of both sides of my mouth. You say, well, how do you become a believer if it's not about what I do? And this is the glorious paradox of biblical theology. It's so much better than philosophy. who has no frame of reference for holy paradoxes. We can be able to say things that are in the Scripture that sound contradictory that are not because we believe that God's ways are higher than our ways and His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And even as I stated, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated and that God has mercy on whom He will and He hardens whomever He will. One chapter later, one chapter later in verses 9-11, through 11, here's what it says. For this is what the promise said. Oh. 9 through 11 in chapter 10. I was right back in that. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's not to nations, that's to people, individuals. If you confess and believe, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so here's the challenge to the non-believer. If you're in here this morning, if you're a child, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Confess your need from Him. Believe in anybody, anybody in this world. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And how you need to respond this morning to this message Christians respond in awe and worship. Just, God's gracious to me. The non-Christian needs to respond in this way. Repent and ask God for mercy. Confess your sins and believe in your heart and you will be saved. Done deal. That's God's promise to you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for just your kindness. Um, Lord, I, I understand that these passages are hard. And so this morning, I just ask that you would just show us, help us just to stand at the Grand Canyon. Help us to stand and see the Grand Tetons. Help us to just look in awe at your glory. At the fact that you are the potter and that we are the clay. That we are dependent upon you. You are not dependent upon us. That you will have mercy on whom you have mercy and compassion on whom you have compassion that it is okay for you to love Jacob and hate Esau. And even if we have questions, which we all will about the ins and outs of that, help us not to run from things that are plain in your word. Help us to embrace them and say, God, I may never understand, I don't fully understand, but I believe that you're the potter and I'm the clay. And I trust that based on no works of my own, you chose me before the foundation of the world, before I was even born, and you've been kind and merciful to me, and I just thank you. So God, lead us in that. Holy Spirit, I trust that you will. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.